We are going through a series called Welcome to Sound City Bible Church, looking at the key doctrines, the beliefs, the values that shape who we are as a church, the way that we seek to live out the mission that God has given to us. And so uh, we are, as he said, in week two. Last week, we looked at the idea of the mission that God has given to us. If you didn't hear that or didn't uh, be, weren't able to make it to service last week, we'd encourage you, go to our website. You can find uh, the audio for that sermon and the notes, the outline for that, uh, because these are kind of building on one another. And so I uh, want you to make sure that you're up to speed. And, and like I said last week, let me just remind you of the three goals that we have in this sermon series. The first goal that we have in this sermon series is just simply to inform you the members and the attenders of Sound City Bible Church, what it is that shapes what we do. What are the beliefs? What are the values? So that you can understand where we're coming from and how the the elders, how the pastors of the church are leading and how all of us together as the members, the body that God has called to be a family, how it is that we seek to live out the mission that God's given to us. The second purpose is a little bit more practical We want this sermon series to help finalize, for many, uh, a membership process. As you know, in January, we relaunched as a a new church replant, and so we've restarted a, a kind of a membership process. And at the end of this teaching series, we are going to do a membership celebration for the founding members of Sound City Bible Church. So if you are someone who has been uh, interested in membership and wanted to maybe follow up with a member interview, uh, now would be the time to follow up on that. Don't delay any longer because at the end, we're gonna do kind of a founding member celebration. If you wanna be a part of that, uh, that would be an important uh, next step for you to do that. And then here's the third and the most important goal that we have for this sermon series. You ready? It is to make it not be about us as a church, but to make it be about our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The last thing in the world you need, I said it last week, I'll say it again, the last thing in the world you need is a 45-minute infomercial for a church. What you need is the truth of God's word. What you need is to see your Savior, Jesus, high and exalted and lifted up. What you need is to have your heart and your life transformed by his Holy Spirit. And so even though we're talking about things that are valuable to us as a church, things that are part of who we are as a church body, we do not want this to be about us. We want it to always be about Jesus. Amen? So with that stated goal in mind, today we begin kind of a mini-series within the series three weeks in a row on our values, the things that are the most important to us. We're gonna look at three of those values. This week, the first three values, will look at our relationship to God. How is it that we relate to God? Next week, values four through six, we'll look at how we relate with other Christians, other members of the body of Christ. And then on the last week of this value section, we'll look at how it is that we relate to a non-believing, non-Christian World. So that's a little bit of a snapshot of what's coming up. Today, as Pastor Travis said, we're in Philippians chapter 4 in verses 8 through 9. If you want to turn there in your Bible and read along, you can. If you don't have a Bible, we have some out in the lobby. We would love to give you one. That would be our gift to you. But if you have this open in your Bibles, please read along with me from Philippians chapter 4. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together, church. God, every week when we gather together, my prayer is in line with the psalmist who says, open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your word. God, today we come with hearts of of neediness, knowing that each and every one of us, we need to grow, we need to change, we're in need of your grace. But God, we also come with hearts of eager expectation, anticipation, God, knowing that when we open the pages of the scripture, we can hear you speak directly to us. God, I pray that you would guard my lips, you would guard my tongue, that I would only speak that which was truth in alignment with your word. God, I pray for all of us. Would you give us ears to hear and soft hearts to receive that truth? God, I ask that you'd send your Holy Spirit now to cause the words of the scriptures to come to life in our hearts and may all of our attention and all of our focus go on Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. And everybody said, amen. 
I wanna ask you a couple of questions to get your wheels turning here before we dive into the subject at hand. Let me ask you uh, some questions about what is valuable to you and what's important to you. So first question is, if you woke up and saw that your house was on fire, heaven forbid, but if you saw that your, your house was going up in flames, what is it that you would grab? What is the most valuable thing that you would want to make sure you went and got and took out of the house before it was consumed with flames? Or, also heaven forbid, somebody hires a private detective to follow you around for a month, right? Spying on you from the bushes, digging through your trash, what would they come back and say after a month of watching you is the most important thing in your life? What is it that you do? What is it that you uh, value? What do you prize? What do you treasure? Or if somebody looked through your bank statement, looked at where you spend your money, how you uh, use the resources that God has given to you, what would they say is the most important thing to you? Okay, so that's individually. Let's think about corporately. For us as a church, imagine that somebody from uh, maybe a, a more primitive culture that had no familiarity with Western culture or with the Bible or with Christianity, they came to one of our church services for maybe a few weeks. What is it that they would go back to their people and say, wow, those people are all about fill in the blank? Or even more fantastic, Aliens land in our culture. Aliens land and they spend a few months watching us looking. They would say, these Americans, these people, they're all about what? Fill in the blank. What's the most valuable? What's the most important thing to these people? The big idea really today is that whatever is most important to us, whatever we value and prize the most will shape the way in which we live our lives. Or put another way, what we treasure will lead and guide our hearts, and we live out of our hearts. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he's not just talking about money, although it can include that. And the Bible also says in Proverbs, to watch your heart, to guard your heart, because from your heart flow the springs of life. That's where your life flows out of, is if out of your heart. And so what is it that you treasure? What is it that you value? That will shape your life. There's a, an English reformer, a guy named Thomas Cranmer, who was involved in the Reformation in England, and it was a miracle that he managed to not have his head chopped off by Henry VIII, but uh, before, he, before he died, he had a great quote, and he put it this way, studying the human condition, studying how we make our choices, he says this, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. What it is that you love will shape the choices you make, and then your mind comes along and does cleanup duty and gives you a reason, a justification. I could even use the word an excuse for why you did what you did. And people bristle against this because especially in our American culture, we feel like we're, we're very autonomous. We're in charge of our own fate. I'm the captain of my own soul. But we all know, both people that we know and even times in our own lives where you look at some decision you made, you look at some action that you took, you thought, why in the world did I do that? Is that just me or is there anybody else that has looked back at your life and said, I have no idea why I did that. I have no idea why I made that choice. But it's because your choices flow out of your heart. What it is that you love, what it is that you value, what it is that you prize and what you treasure. We all know people who make decisions and do things even knowing that they're bad for them, right? I know that this time going through the fast food drive through the sixth time this week is probably bad for me, but I'm just going to do it again because we love it. We either love the convenience or we love the taste. We don't live strictly according to what we think. We don't live strictly according to what we choose. The Bible would say, the Bible would teach that we live according to what we love, what we treasure, what we value, what we prize and what's most important to us. And so that's where this text from Philippians comes in. Read this again, Philippians 4 in, in verses 8 and 9. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. Paul is in prison, and the church in Philippi was one of the few groups of Christians that actually supported Paul while he was in prison. They helped take care of him. And so uh, some commentators have said that the book of Philippians is like an extended thank you letter. It's one of the most encouraging letters in the entire New Testament. And also, it's full of joy. The Apostle Paul, writing from prison, is talking a lot about joy. And so here at, at the conclusion of his letter, as he's wrapping things up, this is what he says. This is kind of his, his final parting word. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just or, or fair, whatever is pure, 
whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, you get the idea that, that Paul is just kind of piling on synonyms. Whatever's the best things, whatever's the most important things, think on these things. Put these in the forefront of your mind. Identify them. And then he says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. First of all, let me just say from the outset that some people look at this, this verse from Paul to the, to the Philippians and they kind of look at it as almost a Pollyanna sort of uh, Bible verse. You guys know Pollyanna where she had this sunny side of life mentality. I only think of the glad things. I don't think of the bad things, right? The apostle Paul is not Pollyanna. There's a difference between Paul and Pollyanna, right? The Apostle Paul is a man who himself was very acquainted with suffering and with hardship and with pain. He did not have a rose-colored glasses view of the world. He himself had been rejected because of his conversion to Christianity. He himself had been imprisoned multiple times, beaten multiple times, shipwrecked. But my favorite one is when he was shipwrecked, they barely make it to the shore, you know, just barely clinging to life. They make a fire to try to stay warm. A snake jumps out and bites him. Like, that is a bad day. He said he was even stoned. And that's not what some of you Washingtonians think. It means they threw rocks at him until he was literally left for dead. That is a bad day. Paul is someone who is very familiar with the sinfulness and the brokenness and the heartbreak in the world. And yet he still, at the end of this letter to the Philippians, some of the people who he loves the most, he encourages them to fill their minds with the things that are the most valuable, prize-worthy, and excellent. Sociologists tell us that we as human beings are seven times more likely to remember negative things than we are to remember positive things. Did you know that? Seven times more likely. If someone comes up to you and says something insulting, you're, you're stupid, that carries seven times the emotional weight as if someone came up to you and said, you're very smart and I appreciate the way in which you think. Did you know that? I think that it has to do with our condition as fallen human beings. Ever since the fall of man in Genesis 3, ever since Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and eat the forbidden fruit, our, our, our mindset, our, our natural proclivity is to focus on those things that are wrong and broken. And yet here in God's word, there is an encouragement to take those things that are honorable, pure, praiseworthy, excellent, and to place those into our minds and think on them. So first of all, there's kind of three elements involved in this passage. First, Paul says you need to identify what those things are. Take some time. Think about what the most valuable things are, what's most commendable. If I was to ask you today, what in your life is just excellent? What's amazing in your life right now? Some of you are going to take a little bit extra time because you know why? Your mind is filled with all the things that are wrong in your life. What's excellent? What do you have that's worth praising God over. Identify those things. Second, he says, think about these things. The word think here does not mean just think, like, oh, that's interesting. I just thought about it. It means to ponder. It means to chew on. It means to wrestle with. Another biblical word that could be uh, used here would be to meditate on these things. Fill your mind with them and think on them day and night. How many of you know that the word meditate is a very biblical word? Some of you are afraid of the word meditate because it has been used by other world religions, particularly Eastern religions, to mean something that's very different than what the Bible means when it says meditate. In Eastern religions, the point of meditation is to empty your mind and to basically become nothing. But according to the Bible, we meditate to fill our minds with the truth of God's word and to soak on those truths so that they start to feel more and more real to our sinful hearts. You see the difference? One is empty yourself of all thought. One is think deeply on the things of God. To ponder these things, to, to chew on them, to allow them to linger. We are a microwave society. Do I get an amen from anybody on that? We like things. Yeah, thank you. It was not quick enough. I need quicker amens, you guys, because of a, the problem I just mentioned, right? We, we're a microwave society. We want things instantly. We want things quick. But the Bible would encourage us to take our time, chew on those things. But then lastly, the Apostle Paul says, what you have learned and what you have received and heard and seen in me, the things I've modeled for you, I want you to put them into practice. It's not enough to just identify the most important things. It's not enough to just think about the most important things. I actually want you to live them out. Like we said at the beginning, 
our values will influence how we live our lives. So as we've launched into this new season as a church, as a church replant here, Sound City Bible Church, we as the elder team, we really spent the last few months trying to identify those things that are going to be most important to us, trying to wrestle through prayerfully in the scripture, in community, in relationship, what it is that we would like to say are the most valuable, the most important things to us as a church. It's, it's harder uh, to do than it sounds for, for two reasons. Number one, the reason why it's hard is because there are so many good things. There's no shortage of good things to focus on when you really take the time to think about it. The question is, is this just a good thing or is this a God thing? Is this just a good idea or is this something that God is actually calling us as a church family to pursue, to value, to emphasize? And the second reason why establishing a list of values is hard is because you always run the risk of saying, this is valuable to us, and then you don't actually do it, right? It's like those people, none of us, obviously, but those people who say, oh yeah, health and exercise is very valuable to me, but they haven't been to the gym in three months, right? Again, awkward silence means we don't know anything about that. I'm just assuming, you know, this is, this is not that group of people, right? As a church, we did not want to say, here are the valuable and important things to us and then not be prepared to actually walk it out. We want to live these values out. And so that's another reason why it's hard to come up with this list because we want to make sure that we're prepared to uh, put into action, like the Apostle Paul says, put into action these things that are important. By God's grace, uh, over the last few months in prayer and conversation, even wrestling through with some of our members in the members meeting, just having great dialogue about what those things are, I believe that God has led us to identify these nine key values that we want to emphasize in the months and the years to come. And so like I said, we're going to address the first three, and the first three are all in our relationship to God. If you are a note taker, uh, you're going to love this because lots of scriptures for you to look up later, lots of things for you to follow up and study on later. But let me uh, briefly identify these three values for us and unpack what they mean. Number one is this. As a church, we value sound doctrine. We value sound doctrine. The words of the Apostle Paul to Titus, Titus 2.1, one of his younger pastoral uh, trainees, he says this, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. This is where it all starts for us, Sound City. Teaching what accords with sound doctrine. But a couple of questions come up, at least in, in my mind, when you think of sound doctrine. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. The first question is this, what is sound doctrine? How do we know what sound doctrine is? How do we identify this? It needs a little bit more definition. So I would say this, there are four parts. What sound doctrine means that it's doctrine that is rooted and grounded in the scripture, okay? God gave us a book. God gave us a book. I'm very thankful that God gave us a book because my brain leaks and I forget things, right? One of our greeters this morning said he got He's got half-timer syndrome. He remembers half of the information half of the time. Another guy said, well, yeah, and then only half of that information that you remember is right. So your, your, your statistics are getting really bad, right? God gave us a book. We forget things. We leak information. But God, in his grace, gave us something that was written down, a firm foundation that we can come to and say, this is the word of God. I don't have to speculate. I don't have to imagine. I don't have to dream up something. I can come to the word and I can say, if I want to hear God speak, I can read this book. God is so gracious. It also means that this Bible is the measuring stick by which we measure any other revelation. God does speak in a variety of different ways, but the scripture is the, the authoritative way. It means we measure all of revelation and truth by God in his word. The Bible is utterly unique. It's, it's not just one book. It's 66 books. It's written over a period of several thousand years by dozens of different authors, all of whom were inspired by the Holy Spirit. God spoke through men to write about one singular topic, and that is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is at the center of the Bible. Everything in the Old Testament is leading up to Jesus. Everything in the New Testament is explaining what just happened with this Jesus who showed up on the scene. The Bible is the word of God. This is not merely a collection of good ideas. It is not merely a collection of, of uh, religious sayings. It's the word of God. And as such, we place high, high value on the teaching of sound doctrine from the word of God. So 2 Timothy 1.3, the apostle Paul says, follow the pattern of sound words that you heard from me in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Follow this pattern of sound words. Make it be a habit, make it be a pattern to teach that which is in accordance with sound doctrine. Sound doctrine also means that we take into account the whole counsel of God's word. 
it means that we don't just pick and choose the parts that we like and cut out the parts that we don't like or conveniently ignore. It means that we take into account the entire counsel of God. In Acts 20, the apostle Paul is standing with a group of church elders in Ephesus. And one of the things that he says, he says, you have known since I have been with you these last few years that I have never shied away from teaching you from the whole counsel of God. I have not been afraid to tell you the parts of the Bible that you may not like. Because how many of you know that there are parts in this book that go against our natural desires, our natural tendencies, our natural thoughts? Okay, if you have never read the Bible, you ought to try reading the Bible. It'll be very good for you, but it will frustrate you at times. I experience this all the time. God, I kind of wish that that verse wasn't in there. Faced with a choice, I can either change the Bible or I can change my perspective and my attitude. So it means that we teach from the whole counsel of God's word. That's sound doctrine. Number three, sound doctrine distinguishes between primary and secondary matters. Okay, I said that the big idea, the big point of this book is Jesus Christ. There are a million other ideas and topics that are addressed in this book. Not all of them are of equal weight and importance. All of them are important, but not all of them are equally important. Let me give you a few examples. In Matthew 22, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees because they were really into tithing. They loved to tithe. They loved to give a tenth of everything they earned to the temple in worship of God. And they were so into tithing that they had begun tithing from their kitchen cupboards. They were bringing a tenth of their peanut butter. They were bringing a tenth of their rice aroni. They were bringing a tenth of their whatever it is that was in there. It says that they were tithing from their spice racks, their mint and their cumin. And Jesus says, you're so into tithing, but you have neglected, his words, the weightier matters of the law. Jesus said, that's not bad that you want to give, but there are more important things like mercy and justice. Or the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, in writing to this church in Corinth that was just all messed up, he says, I had delivered to you what is of first importance. And then he outlines the gospel that God sent Jesus, born of a woman, to live a perfect life, to die in our place for our sins, and then to rise again to conquer over sin and death. He says that's the first and most important thing is the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's interesting is in 1 Corinthians 15, in that passage, he had just gotten done talking about speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues is important, but it is not of first importance. Listen, there can be some disagreement or some differences between Christians. Some Christians would say speaking in tongues is a, a valid and important part of the life of the church today. Some would say, no, that was just for that first century and it's passed away. Okay, if people are having that disagreement, neither one of them is necessarily in jeopardy of losing their salvation, so to speak. However, if there are two people who are arguing, one says that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, died for the sins of the world, he is the way to heaven. Another one says, well, he's a way, and you could probably just get to heaven by your good works. Then yes, one of those people is in danger of hell. There are things that are more critically important, more immediately pressing. All of God's truth is important. None of it is unimportant, but there are things that are weightier and more important. And so teaching sound doctrine means distinguishing between primary, secondary, and even speculative things like, did Adam have a belly button? The answer is obviously yes, because if he didn't, he would look really weird. But the Bible doesn't say that. That's from the book of First Aaron's, right? There's important things, primary matters. There are other important things, but they are secondary where Christians can have some level of disagreement and discussion. Number four, sound doctrine. This is really important because sound doctrine builds us up in love. When you teach sound doctrine, when you learn sound doctrine, when you understand the truth of God's word, it builds us up in love. The last thing in the world that you want to be is a big-headed doctrinal theologian with no heart. The truth of God's word without that heart of love and grace and compassion is, I'll just say it bluntly, it's a very ugly thing. People who are correct in all of their doctrinal assertions, they've got all their doctrine, they've got all their boxes checked, but they have no heart of love, they have no heart of grace, no heart of compassion, that is an ugly, ugly thing. So real sound doctrine leads us to a heart of humility, 
leads us to a heart of grace, leads us to a heart of love. This is Paul in Philippians 1 verse 9. He says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. I want you to have more love with knowledge and with all discernment. Knowledge and discernment, sound doctrine, right thinking, but with love. Don't ever separate those two things. I was reminded by one of our members after the first service that in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, if I could understand all mysteries, if I could understand literally everything that the Bible says and even beyond, but I don't have love, I am nothing. I'm nothing. Sound doctrine is not sound doctrine without love. I'm gonna say that again because that was good. Sound doctrine is not sound doctrine without love. It's not. It's just information. So with that as a definition of sound doctrine, second question is, why is it so important? Why are we making it be not just in our top 10 list, but literally the first one out of the gate? First reason is this, we are prone to wander, okay? We're prone to wander. And it's not just those people, it's all of us. In the garden, the serpent came to Eve and tempted her with these words. Did God really say? And ever since then, Human beings have been listening to that same line. Did God really say, what, what did God really say? Maybe if you understood it in context a little bit better. Did God really say, we are prone to wander. The Apostle Paul warns Timothy, one of his uh, young pastoral protégés, he says this, he says, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Two very interesting things about that verse. The first is that it reinforces what we just saw earlier, that people don't live out of their thoughts. They live out of their hearts, their passions, what they love, what they value. And then later, they'll find teachers, teachings to explain it and justify it. The other thing that's interesting is that word passions very often in the New Testament is specifically kind of a a veiled reference uh, to sexual passions. That the Apostle Paul is saying people are going to want to break the rules of what God said about sexuality. That, That sex is to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife and committed partnership for all of life. Marriage, a covenant of marriage. And that They're going to want to experience their passions elsewhere, and they're going to come along later and find teachers to suit what their itching ears want to hear. Before we pick up any stones to start throwing, though, may we all examine our own hearts and say, God, where am I prone to wander? Where am I being led by my passions instead of being led by the truth of your word? Sound doctrine is important because we will wander. It's part of our sinful, broken human nature. Until the day that Christ Jesus returns and we are transformed to make like like him, we will be prone to this wandering. Second reason why sound doctrine is important is because God is interested in our maturity. 2 Peter 3.18, the Apostle Peter says this, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Knowledge and grace, again, they're paired together. Growing in knowledge means that we grow in maturity. Think about it this way. Children have less of an understanding about you or the world than an older child. And an older child has less understanding than an adult does. God is interested in us not just being babies, only drinking milk. He wants us to eat solid food. Would you agree? God wants us to grow and wants us to mature and wants us to study and to learn and to understand the truth of his word. Now, some of you, may push back on that and you say, well, listen, Pastor Aaron, I'm not really the the academic type, okay? I don't own anything with elbow patches on it and I've never even smoked a pipe. I'm not even very smart. I don't know how to study that way. I don't wanna be some brainiac. I don't wanna be some academic. I just wanna love God. Okay, fair point. When you hear studying or growing or maturing, maybe you don't, maybe academics isn't the best way to put it. Put it in the context of relationship. If you know somebody and you're in relationship with them, you're gonna know things about them. Would you agree? If I go out on a date with my wife and I forgot her birthday, there's going to be trouble, right? 
There's going to be trouble if I don't remember her eye color. There's going to be trouble if I don't remember her story. Oh, yeah, what was your childhood like? I forgot. If I don't know her likes, her dislikes, it's, it's relational. I'm not picking up books at the library on my wife. That would be weird. <laughs> but I'm studying her in a relational way. Very similarly with God. Do you know what pleases God? Do you know his likes and dislikes, if I could put it in that context? Do you know his story? Do you know the story that he has been writing since the beginning of time? Studying, maybe take it out of the realm of academics, put it in the realm of relationship. I want to know my God better. I want to know who he is so that I can know him more. Doctrine is important because that's what grows us. That's what matures us in our understanding of him and in our grace towards others. Number three, sound doctrine is important because the stakes are eternal life and death. Like I said, there are some things that you can believe or disbelieve and it, it will have an effect on your life, but maybe not that much. There are other things that you can believe or disbelieve where we're literally talking about heaven and hell. We're talking about eternal enjoyment of the presence of God or eternal separation from him in torment. This is important. In John 6, there's a story where Jesus had been teaching and he taught some hard things. He taught some of those words that people's itching ears did not want to hear. And it says that great crowds of people left him. They, they walked off, they wandered away. So Jesus kind of huddles back up with his 12 disciples and says, well, are you guys gonna leave me too? And Peter, bless his heart, he actually got one right. He said, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Good job, Peter. That's a solid double. I'm, I'm proud of you, bro. Known for kind of striking out pretty often, but he, he got that one right. Where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. So sound doctrine matters because it has to do with things of eternity. It has to do with things of eternity. So I ask this question, how will we as a church value the teaching of sound doctrine. How will we live out this value? We don't wanna just talk about it, we wanna live it out. A couple of ways. First is this, in our Sunday preaching and teaching, myself, your other pastors, and any guest teachers that we invite in, our hope, our, our goal, our aim is to always have it be in accordance with the truth of God's word. Amen? I want the Bible to be open. I want people to be fed the truth of God's word. You do not want nor do you need the opinions of Pastor Aaron or Pastor Shane or Pastor Travis. Amen? Some of their wives said a loud amen in the first service, right? You do not want just our opinions. What you need is the truth of God's word. And so on Sundays, when we gather together and open the Bible, we'll see what God wants to say. That's one of the ways that we'll value sound doctrine. Second is this. We'll value sound doctrine through other classes, events, and small groups. We, uh, we're intentionally keeping our programming light right now as a new church replant. It's easy to fill up the calendar, fill up the schedule too much. But as we grow, uh, my hope and my prayer is that we'd be able to add some other classes and things to continue to train you in the words of the scripture and in sound doctrine. Number three, we will value sound doctrine by encouraging and empowering personal study and growth to let you know about books or resources or ways that you can continue to learn and grow on your own, not just in, in large group settings and not just in community group or small group settings. And then lastly, we will value sound doctrine. It bears repeating again by encouraging graciousness and humility, by encouraging you to not become puffed up or to become arrogant in your study of sound doctrine, in your study of the words of the scripture. There's a, you kind of think about, um, maybe an athlete, right? You don't want to be one of those uh, bodybuilders where you have big muscles, but they're not really very useful for anything, right? We want to be athletes. We want to be trained for action. We want to be trained in doctrine that builds us up in love. There's this verse in 1 Corinthians uh, 8 where the apostle Paul is, is talking about people who know that idols, they're, they're really just dead statues. Some people were very superstitious about idols. Others know that they just weren't really anything. So Paul is saying, yeah, you know that when food is sacrificed to idols, it's not really anything. It's just a, a dead hunk of metal. He goes, but if you have this knowledge and you just possess this knowledge, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So we will value sound doctrine by continuing to encourage you in grace and humility. Think of it this way. How many of you know 
that the more you learn about God, the more you realize you don't know about God. As though we could somehow grasp an infinite, eternal, triune being. Yep, I got it figured out. If anyone ever says that to you, just run. Yes, I understand all things about God. No, you don't. I'm going to leave now. Second value, number two. We value as a church prayer. Romans 12, 12, be constant in prayer. It's an encouragement for us as God's people. Be constant in prayer. I like this quote by J.C. Ryle. He says, uh, there is everything on God's part to make prayer easy if men will only attempt it. God has opened up the channels of communication through his son, Jesus Christ. Will you be a person of prayer? So let's ask this question again. Why is prayer important? The first reason why prayer is important is that it's biblical, okay? Some of you sound doctrine people, you love the Bible, you love theology, you love, you love uh, sound doctrine. Well, guess what? There are hundreds of verses in the Bible about us being people of prayer, that God communicates to us primarily through his word. We communicate back to God through prayer. I'll just give you a, a few examples. Proverbs 15, 29 says, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Colossians 4, 2, it says, continue steadfastly in prayer, steadfastly, consistently in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. That's kind of an all-encompassing sort of command, right? Just pray all the time. Number two, prayer is important because it's what God's children do. Listen, this may strike some of you as being controversial, but it's true. You can become a Christian having never read the Bible. Reading the Bible is important, but blind people become Christians. Illiterate people become Christians. Nations where the Bible, access to the Bible is limited, people become Christians. You can become a Christian without even necessarily hearing a sermon being preached. Again, sermons are great. But you can become a Christian without ever hearing a sermon be preached. You cannot become a Christian without praying. Even the simplest of prayer, Lord, have mercy on me because I'm a sinner. Prayer is what God's children do. It's how we enter into right relationship with him. Through Jesus, the way that he is opened up by his death and resurrection, you must pray. It's what God's children do. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, the first words he said were, our father. Christian, did you know that God is your loving heavenly father? Do you know that he's delighted to hear your prayers? Do you know that he is not sternly frowning and looking and waiting for you to mess up? No, he's interested in your prayers. Jesus himself, the true son of God, set the example. Luke 5, 16 tells us that Jesus would often withdraw to lonely places and pray. This was a regular practice for Jesus. He had crowds chasing him down. He had people wanting to get his time, get his attention, but he would withdraw and go spend time with his father. Or Hebrews 5, 7, it says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Not only was Jesus known for being a, a person of prayer, he was known for being a loud prayer, okay? He was known for loud cries and tears with supplication and God heard his prayers. So you and I can follow in Jesus' example, be people of prayer, like sons and daughters of God, co-heirs with Christ Jesus. And number three, prayer is important because it puts sin to death and it leads to godliness. You want to see sin start to die off in your life? Start praying. You want to see your prayer life die? Just give unbridled license to your sinful desires. Psalm 32, David says, I acknowledged my sin to you, God. I did not cover my iniquity. I was, I was straight up with you, God. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. Prayer, being straight up with God. God, here's my sin. Here's where I've blown it. He says, God, you forgave me. There's a quote from J.C. Ryle, the, the Puritan preacher that I referenced earlier. He says this, prayer and sinning will never live together in the same heart. Prayer will consume sin or sin will choke prayer. You can be sure that men fall in private long before they fall in public. 
They are backsliders on their knees long before they backslide openly in the eyes of the world. If you can't say amen, you at least ought to be able to say ouch, right? Striking words. Sin and prayer. Competing for attention and affection in your heart. Prayer puts sin to death and leads to godliness. That's why prayer is important. So, question is this. How will we as a church value prayer? Let's keep this one simple. By praying. Let's not overcomplicate it. Let's just pray. Each Sunday, the volunteers gather at 8.15 out in the lobby there, and we spend about 10, 15 minutes together in prayer, praying for the service, praying for you, those of you who are coming today. Your elders, we try to make time every single week in our meetings to take time and pray for the church. I want us to be a people of prayer. We want to be a people of prayer. We seek to value prayer by devoting time to prayer in our gatherings, both large and small. You know that at the end of this teaching, at the end of every service, we have some some men and women, some leaders who gather over there and they want to just pray with you. We take time every week for that. You know, in our services, when we gather, we take extended time of singing. Singing is just prayer with a melody, right? This fall, by God's grace, I should say summer in August, we're going to do a six-weeks-long sermon series on the Lord's Prayer which Jesus' disciples came and said, would you teach us how to pray? And he did. He taught them how to pray. And so we're going to follow that up by teaching on prayer, by encouraging you to pray. Uh, Next week, there's a group of churches, a couple dozen churches in the Shoreline area who are coming together on the National Day of Prayer on Thursday night. It's in the Shoreline room at the Shoreline Center there where the school district offices are. And a couple dozen churches are going to get together and we're going to pray. I'm leading the songs. I don't know. It might be a weird event. I don't know. I don't know all these people. But I'm going to go because I heard that other Christians were going to be praying. You're welcome to join. I'd love to have Sound City Bible Church represent at the National Day of Prayer event, if you would. Let me give you one other practical tip. Here's how we can value prayer as a church. We can value prayer as a church by praying for each other, personally, individually. Some of you have come up to me, or I, I see people come up in the hallways, and they say things like, oh, would you keep me in prayer? I've got this struggle, got this thing going on. And I know I have surprised at least a few of you by saying, let's pray right now. I learned that from one of my uh, pastors in my 20s. He was a guy who was, let's just pray right now. Put a hand on the shoulder and we just pray. We can all do that for one another, amen? And I don't know about you, but sometimes people ask me to pray and confession, I go away. 15 minutes later, I've probably kind of forgotten about it because other things pop up in my mind. I know, I'm the worst, right? You've never done that. Let's pray for each other right then and there. Put a hand on their shoulder. Don't have to be eloquent. You don't have to give a Winston Churchill speech. Let's just pray for one another, right? God, they're broken, they're hurting. Would you help them? I don't even know what to say, but you know, God. We want to be a church that values prayer. Last one, number three. We want to be a church that values enjoying God. Okay? Enjoying God. This one's a little harder to nail down. Sound doctrine, right, we think correctly. Prayer, we do it, we pray. What does it mean to truly enjoy God? Well, this verse in Psalm 16, 11, it says this, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I like that verse. And then this quote from C.S. Lewis, I think sums it up well. Joy is the serious business of heaven. You were created for pleasure and for joy. And let me tell you why. It's because you were created in the image and likeness of God. And did you know that God is more joyful than any of us? Did you know that God created the world, the universe, mankind for his good pleasure? You know what that means? To enjoy us. You and I were created for joy, for enjoyment, and for pleasure. But because we are sinful, because we are fallen, we seek joy in all the wrong places. We look for joy in thin things. It's like God saying there's a, a, a steak dinner, a bountiful feast before you. You're like, no, thank you. I will have some cold McDonald's French fries that I found on the floor of my neighbor's car. I know some of you went to college. You've been desperate. Right? God is, God is where all of our greatest joy is found. God is where all of our greatest pleasure is found, and yet we trade it for other things. But we're all motivated by joy. There's a, a 17th century, uh, century philosopher and, and scientist named Blaise Pascal who put it this way. He says, all men seek happiness, and this is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to the same end. 
The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. They will never take the least step but this, to this object. He says people won't do anything if it's not gonna lead them to greater happiness. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. Even those who take their own lives is because they've lost any hope that there would be any happiness. There's such great sorrow that the only way they think they could escape from that sorrow and achieve more happiness is to take their own life. What he's saying here is that people will pursue what they think will make them happy. And the Bible clearly teaches that our greatest delight, our greatest joy is found in God himself. So why is enjoying God important? Why is this of value for us? First of all, because God himself is full of joy. That was profound. I'm gonna say it again because some of you don't believe it. God is full of joy. You may have a picture in your mind of God as the scowling, frowning sky deity just waiting to drop the hammer on you, but I am telling you that God is way more happy than you realize. Nehemiah 8.10, it says that the joy of the Lord will be your strength. The joy of the Lord, the joy that belongs to the Lord, the joy that the Lord shares with you from himself will be your strength. John 15, 11, Jesus. If, if I see one more movie where Jesus walks around with a scowl on his face the whole time, I'm gonna lose it because he says, John 15, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you. Jesus was happy. Jesus was full of joy. Galatians 5.22, one of the fruit of the Spirit is joy, love, joy, peace, patience. That means when you remain connected to God and His Spirit, joy starts to grow in you. That's one of the evidences that you're connected to God as you start to grow in joy. So God Himself is full of joy. There's a difference between joy and, and happiness. They're related, but they're different. Happiness is related to what is happening. If your circumstances are good, you're happy. If your circumstances are bad, you're unhappy. Joy is deeper than that. It's a contentment, a rich contentment. And yes, even an enjoyment in the middle of difficult circumstances. God himself is joyful. Number two, it's important because we are commanded to seek God's joy. Philippians 4.4, the apostle Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. This is such an important command that I'm gonna tell it to you twice in a row. I'm like, Paul, you could keep going. We need this to sink in. Rejoice. 1 John 1, 4, John writes, I'm writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. I want you to read this letter I'm writing, John says, because there's more joy for you to have. And number three, enjoying God is important because joy is the overflow of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God sent his son to live a perfect life, to die a, a brutal death in our place, a death that you and I deserved to die because of our sinfulness, but that Jesus went in our place. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead, conquering over sin, conquering over the grave. And the good news is that all who trust in Jesus now are guaranteed eternal life in him eternal life in the presence of God. If that doesn't make you happy, I don't know what will. The gospel spills over into joy and it's not just our joy. Hebrews 12, two says that Jesus endured all of that pain, all of the cross because of the joy that was set before him. Did you know that Jesus did not go to the cross with an attitude of, I guess, Father, if that's what I have to do. He says, for the joy that was set before him, delighted to see sinful men and women redeemed. Acts 8.8, 8, there's one of dozens of examples. In, in Acts, it says the word of the Lord came to the people in Samaria and they were overflowing with joy after they received the gospel. Joy is the overflow of the gospel. We wanna be gospel people, right? Joy is one of the natural byproducts, one of the natural overflows of the gospel. So how will we seek to enjoy God? Number one, by teaching you how to live for God's glory. If you were not here last week, that was one of the major themes that we touched on was God's glory and our joy being intimately tied together. God has created us in such a way that when we live for his glory, we actually experience the most joy. The, the Westminster Catechism, uh, church, uh, a learning tool really, puts it this way. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him 
forever. So by teaching you how to glorify God, by encouraging you to live your life for God's glory, you will experience more joy. The second way that we will enjoy God is by fostering a culture of joy and enjoyment of God, his people, and his good gifts. A couple of verses along those lines. Ecclesiastes 3, 12, and 13. Solomon writes, I perceive that there is nothing better for them, for mankind, than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Or James 1. James writes, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What are the things in your life that are good and that you enjoy? Do you know where those come from? God. If the gifts are that good, how good must be the giver? I remember as a child, my, my grandpa, in his garage, he had a secret jar full of M&Ms. I think my grandma knew about it, but we just all pretended that she didn't, right? And I would go to my grandparents' house. My, my grandparents would babysit me a lot in the summers. They would watch me uh, when my parents both worked. And I would go and I'd say, Grandpa, 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 where's the M&Ms? As I was younger and less mature. And as I grew... I grew in my love and my appreciation for my grandfather himself. And then he would take me to the M&M's. You know why? Because he was a good grandpa, right? There's a point in which, you know, as Christians, we're, we're immature, where we're just pleased by the gifts. But as we grow in maturity, we want to be pleased by the giver of the gifts. We want to foster that culture. What do you love? What do you enjoy? What are the good gifts that God has given to us? Gratitude says, God, you're so good. These gifts are amazing. You must be even more amazing. Stir my heart to worship. Stir my heart to love you, to glorify you with all that I have. We want to foster that culture here at Sound City. And number three, how will we enjoy God? And it's by this, by encouraging all to have their deepest desires met in God himself. Psalm 37 verse four puts it this way, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. All of our desires are meant to be met in God. As a pastor, sometimes I meet with people who are struggling with sin. They're, they're stuck in a particular sin. And the reason why is that they want something. Their passions are leading them. Their desires are leading them. One example might be uh, someone who is enslaved in the sin of pornography. And their heart desires something. They want, maybe it's beauty. Maybe it's comfort. Maybe it's relief, whatever it is that they want, that desire was meant to be met in God. Did you know that the Bible speaks of God as being more beautiful than anything else in all of creation? So that desire for beauty, it's trading the banquet for cold french fries or comfort or, or rest or peace. All of our comfort, all of our rest, all of our peace is found in God. Don't trade it for cold french fries. The only way to to have a desire, a sinful desire be truly beaten is to have it conquered with a greater desire. You do not, you can't put enough safeguards and accountability groups in your life to change desires. You know what can change desires? A deeper desire. There's an analogy um, that I've heard. I've never read them all the way through, but uh, in the, the, the old, the Odyssey by Homer, there's a story of two different men who went through dangerous waters. In the waters, were these sirens. You familiar with what a siren is? They're beautiful mer-women folk, and they sing these songs. They're beautiful, beautiful-sounding songs, and they allure the sailors off of the boat. The sailors go over into the water. The sirens drown and kill them. Very dangerous because they sing this beautiful song. So the first group that goes through, a man named Ulysses, Ulysses says, we're going to sail through these siren-infested waters. They're going to sing their beautiful song. The only way we're going to make it through is if all you men plug your ears up with cotton and you tie me to the mast of the ship. Put me in prison, essentially. All the soldiers plugged up their ears with cotton. They tied Ulysses to the mast of the ship, and they did safely make it through. Some of them did not, but many of them did. The second man that went through is a man named Jason. You've heard of Jason and the Argonauts? They went through on their ship, but they had a secret weapon. They had a man named Orpheus, who was the most talented musician that had ever existed in the world. And they said, when we go through the siren-infested waters, when they start singing their beautiful and lovely song, Orpheus, we want you to play music that's louder and more lovely and more beautiful. 
and they all made it through because the one desirous thing was overpowered by a greater desirous thing. Both made it through the waters. One was in prison, one was free. In Christ, our deepest desires are meant to be met in Jesus, not in secondary desires. The only way to conquer a sinful desire is with a greater, more powerful desire. So that's what we're gonna encourage you, to find your deepest desires met in Jesus. Looked at these three key values for us as a church, and I, I sincerely hope and pray that all of you who are Christians, even those of you who are guests or visitors, you would see that these are not about us as a church. These have nothing really at the end of the day to do with us as Sound City Bible Church. This is for us as Christians, that we would value sound doctrine, that we would value being people of prayer, that we would understand what it means to find our deepest joy and our greatest satisfaction in God himself. And Christians, you're gonna leave here today and there is a whole world competing for your attention. Will you be like what the Apostle Paul encouraged us to keep these most important things most important? For those of you who are not Christians who are here today, what is most valuable to you? I love you and I tell you with all the love that I have in my heart, whatever it is, if it's not of Christ, it's temporary. It won't last. And what's more, whatever it is that's most valuable to you that you're seeking your greatest satisfaction in, you're missing out on joy that could be yours in Christ Jesus. The invitation today is stop living for other things of higher value and live for the greatest valuable thing in the whole universe, God himself. I'm gonna call us to a time of response now. We're gonna respond in a few ways as we typically do. The first way we're gonna respond is through the giving of our tithes and offerings where we take our treasure, our money, and we say, God, you're more valuable even than this. So I invite the financial stewards to come forward if they would. If you're a guest, you are under no obligation to give. You're welcome to if you'd like, but we want to make sure that you uh, don't feel pressured in any way, shape, or form. But for those of us who are Christians, I encourage you to give as an act of worship to God to declare him as our greatest value and greatest treasure. While they're collecting the offering, I'll read through a few discussion questions for us to talk about this week in our community groups and in our homes. First one is this. Discuss this quote by Cranmer. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies, how have you seen this play out in your own life? Second, when you think about these three stated values, sound doctrine, prayer, and enjoying God, which ones are already of value in your life? And which ones need put into practice? Some of you are very naturally drawn to prayer, but you're not doing it from a heart of enjoying God. It's maybe more duty. Or some of you love sound doctrine. You love to study and read, but you need to grow in your ability to really connect with God through prayer. Number three, how can we help one another grow both in sound doctrine and humility? That's the balancing act. Not just to have big heads, but to be balanced in, in love and grace and knowledge. Number four, discuss this quote by Ryle. Prayer will consume sin or sin will choke prayer. How can we encourage one another in prayer and away from sin? Number five, why is God concerned with our joy? And how does his gospel lead us to that joy? I'll mention also one thing um, on Mondays, we post up these sermons, a copy of the questions, the outline that I preach from will be up there. And this week I included some recommended resources for further reading. Maybe if there's one of these elements you think, man, I need to actually do some study and some reading on that. There are a few books that we've uh, recommended that you maybe check out that maybe you read. And so you can find that there on our website here uh, tomorrow, later in the week. We're also gonna respond with a celebration of the Lord's table. At the Lord's table, Christians gather together and celebrate that Jesus laid down his life for us, that it was his joy to do so. And so it's our joy to respond in worship to him. And so I'd encourage you today as we, as we take this meal, I, I, I pray that you would do so with a heart that says, Jesus, you satisfy my deepest desires. Even as you eat the bread and, and, and dip it in the cup and eat that, you say, God, you satisfy me. I don't need to find satisfaction in anything else. It's, in, it's found in you. We're also gonna respond in singing. Pastor Joe and the band is gonna lead us in song. I encourage you to lift your voices and rejoice in the God who has given us everything. Let's stand together and I'll pray and we'll begin our time of response. One other thing I, I will mention, while we're singing and celebrating, some leaders will be available off to the side. If you want to pray, to take advantage of this opportunity to pray, don't let this moment pass. If you need to uh, bring some things before God, we wanna be a people of prayer, amen? Let's pray together now. God, we thank you for your word. God, would you help us to be people that are mindful of the most important things? 
Would you keep us from, from distractions? Would you keep us from putting our own priorities ahead of yours? And God, I pray that now as we sing and celebrate, would you help us to be people who are full of your joy? God, let your spirit even begin to stir in our hearts now that we would sing and celebrate you with hearts that are full of love and joy. We pray all these things in Jesus' good name, amen.